Yeah, so this passage is set um, just after Jesus has gone into Jerusalem and he's been welcomed joyfully by the crowds. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say, from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later, They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. 
In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? (coughs) The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength. And to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Thanks, Michelle. It'll be helpful to have uh, that passage in front of you or the outline on the back. I don't know how you do both at the same time, but you're clever. One of the most attractive things about Christianity for me is that it's open to investigation. It's testable because it's about events in history. It's about things that happened in time and space, or at least that's the claim. Um, Which is different to most other religions, in my understanding. Uh, Most other religions rely on private revelation. Somebody sitting in a cave, having an angel tell them things, and you, you can't really test that. It's unfalsifiable or personal enlightenments. Somebody is just sitting there and and an idea comes to their mind. Or intuition, it just feels right to be an atheist or whatever it might be. But Christianity centres on Jesus Christ, a person and events that happened in history. And it was public knowledge back then, it's public knowledge today, it's accessible to anybody. There's nothing secret or hidden. It's not just for believers alone, anybody can come and look at the evidence. In that sense, Christianity puts its neck on the chopping block and invites everybody and anybody to take a swing, to investigate Jesus, to ask the questions you want to ask, to poke and prod as much as you want to. Skeptics are as welcome as believers to put Jesus under the microscope. And if you do it, you won't be the first to do it. Uh, Jesus, when Jesus was around, that's what they were doing all the time. And today's passage, we see that happening time and time again. Skeptics and the curious come and put Jesus under the microscope. So we want to see how Jesus actually goes when he's put under the microscope. 
So a whole lot of questions are posed to Jesus. The first one at that section at the end of chapter 11 come from these three groups of people that together make up the Sanhedrin, the sort of ruling group uh, amongst the Jews of the day. They ask him, by what authority did you what you're doing? Which is a sort of fair question, I think, because Jesus has been doing stuff that really is out of the ordinary. He's just uh, trashed the temple markets, cleared everybody out, got a whip and driven them out. That would sort of be like me walking into one of your lectures and saying, come on, everybody, you've got to get out of here. And I presume you'd say, who are you to tell us that? I mean, I'm a student here. I, I, I belong. I've got a right to be here. What are you doing? Well, Jesus has just done something like that. And they ask the legitimate question, by what authority do you do it? And then two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, ask Jesus a question about taxes in verses 12, uh, 13 to, to 17 of chapter 12. Now, need to know at this time, the Jews are a, a conquered nation. The Roman Empire has overrun them. They live under the rule of the Romans, occupied by Roman soldiers under the Caesar. And Rome insisted that they all pay taxes to Caesar. And those taxes paid for the soldiers who kept the Jews under the thumb. You can imagine it wasn't a very popular thing to do, to pay taxes. On top of that, there was the way you pay taxes. You had to pay taxes in Roman coins, Roman currency. This was a denarius from the time. Uh, And Jews objected to these Roman coins because they had an image of the Caesar on it. And the Jews were very suspicious about an image of anybody, especially when on the, the coin it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. It was a claim to divinity. And an image of a divine being or somebody claiming to be divine was idolatry. Uh, And so Jews thought, we probably even shouldn't have the currency, let alone pay taxes to the Romans with that currency. It's a brilliant trap. It comes, interestingly, from two parties. The Pharisees, who would have opposed paying taxes, and the Herodians, who who are sellouts to the Romans, and would have uh, encouraged paying taxes. And they both come and ask Jesus this question about taxes. They put him on the horn of a dilemma. They butter him up with a bit of flattery first. We know you only speak the truth, Jesus, so he can't worm his way out. And then they ask their question, should we pay taxes? It's sort of like asking Malcolm Turnbull about climate change. (laughs) You expect him not to give a straight answer, because it's just one he, he can't answer. And then another group, the Sadducees, come and ask him about the resurrection. Two things you need to know about the Sadducees. They were a sort of, they were a political group in the time of Jesus who didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought that when you died, that was the end. Your body goes in the grave and you rot. That's why they're sad, you see. (laughs) You also need to know that they only believed the first five books of the Bible. They discounted the rest, uh, what's often called the Pentateuch. And they spin this story that's meant to show the stupidity of belief in resurrection. The background is the Old Testament law that Moses gave Israel that says if if a married couple, uh, if the husband of a married couple dies and they haven't got any kids, then the brother, if he's got one, needs to take her as a wife in order to produce some children so the family line and the family inheritance, their land, can carry on in that family. Um, And so they spin this story taking that, that into account. So a guy and a girl, they get married, great, have no kids, the guy dies, so the brother has to take her. He dies as well. So the next brother does. He dies as well. The next brother does. She must have been a bad cook or something. <laughs> Eventually, after seven, she dies. She's all worn out. 
Still no kids. But the question is, in the resurrection, who will she be married to? Like, surely she can't be married to all seven in the resurrection. That, 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 that's just dumb. And so, therefore, the resurrection must be contrary to the law and it must be wrong. It must not be what's going to happen. Well, that's the question. It, it's sort of like those questions, you know, those ones some people ask, you know, if God is all-powerful, can he make a square circle? And some people think, oh, that's a really clever question. That'll stump people who believe in God. Well, that's the sort of question it is. And lots of people today, I think, believe that the idea of resurrection, that humans will die but one day be raised again to physical, immortal life, is ridiculous. They've never seen it happen. How do you think it's going to happen in the future? And all the molecules of your body have been dispersed all through the atmosphere. How do you think God will ever be able to pull them back together? And then another guy comes and asks a question about the greatest command. Verse 28... He says, of all the commandments that God gave, and in the Old Testament the Jews had sort of counted them all up, there were 613 that they uh, catalogued commands from God, which one is more important? Which is the most important? And it's a good question, isn't it? Well, like, which is more important? Not to murder or to be tolerant? Uh, or to be intolerant of those who are intolerant? What is the greatest command? Because if you've got 613, you've got to have some sort of order to work out what really matters and what isn't so important. And in the days of Jesus, we know that there were debates amongst the rabbis. There was no clear consensus, and this guy asked Jesus' opinion. That is, Jesus just gets hammered with this barrage of questions without notice. He's just put on the spot with all the, 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 the hot topics of the day. A bit like our politicians. It happens to them often, doesn't it? They're just getting out of their car to go to a meeting and and journalists rush up and ask them the the hot-button questions. They're caught off guard and normally they make a hash of giving any sort of answer. And most of these questions are not people trying to find information. It's not the curious. It's people looking for ammunition. Their attempts to show Jesus up and catch him out. Well, how does he cope with it all? How does he answer Well, the question about his authority. He does what is often seen as a clever tactic. They ask him a question, he asks them a question. By what authority did John do his stuff, John the Baptist? And it seems like uh, maybe he's just playing politics, but actually it's a very pertinent question. So John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He'd been doing stuff that almost everybody agreed he must be a true prophet of God from what he said, the way he lived, and, and what he did. And John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said... He's greater than me. Which means if he has God's authority, he's saying Jesus has it in spades, even more than I have. And the, the people who ask the question sort of sit and have the discussion. They say, if we acknowledge it's from heaven, that is from God, Jesus will rightly ask us why we didn't believe John, especially in what he said about Jesus. But if we say it's just human, that he's a fraud... Well, that's pretty hard to sustain given what John had done and the way that people had, had accepted him. And so they play politics. They say, we don't know, shrug shoulders. They're exposed as incompetent. See, they come and say, Jesus, you tell us on what authority you do this and we'll assess you and your answer. And Jesus exposes them as incompetent to assess anybody. They can't assess John. How do they think that they have the right to assess Jesus or the capacity But Jesus doesn't just avoid their question. He tells a parable in the first section of chapter 12. 
A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Common business practice in those days, your property portfolio was often like this. You bought a farm, you made sure it was producing, you rented it out, and you got rent in the produce. In this case, grapes and wine. But it's got a little bit more to it than that, because in the Old Testament, there's a number of passages where God likens the people of Israel to a vineyard and God as the owner who planted the vineyard. And that clearly is behind this little parable. At the harvest time, he, that is the owner, that is God, sent his servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit. But they seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Sent another servant. They struck this man, treated him shamefully, another, and they killed him, and another, and another, and another. And what are you supposed to understand? That This is actually the story of the Old Testament. God keeps sending prophets to the people of Israel, to the leaders of Israel, saying, come on, produce fruit for God. He's made you his own. He's given you incredible privilege. He's given you a land to live in that's flowing with milk and honey. Are you producing righteousness and fruit? And the prophets keep pointing out they didn't. Come on, change your tune. And what did they do to the prophets? Think of Elijah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah they chucked in a pit. Others they killed. John the Baptist got executed. That's what happened time and time again. And then the parable goes on, lastly, the owner sends his own son, his one and only loved son, thinking they'll respect him. Surely when he goes, they'll realise, oh, I'm serious, and, and they'll pay up, they'll pay their rent, as they should. But what did they do to the son? They said, this is our chance. If we kill him, he get, he's the heir of the property, isn't he? Kill him, we get the whole lot. So we'll kill him. It's not a very pleasant story, is it? And then Jesus asks them the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will God do? Obviously, he'll come and kill them. God's judgment will inevitably come on the leaders of Israel, on their temple. It's a parable that's meant to rock them. But there's a really fascinating aspect to it. See, the the owner sends servants and servants, and then he sends his own son. God sends the prophets and then he sends his own son. Who is this son? Because clearly the son is different to all the prophets. He's much more than just a servant. He's the heir of the property. He gets to own everything that God owns, including Israel itself. Who could that possibly be? He's clearly not just a human. He must be much more than a human. This is the son of God. This is God the son. And they're going to kill him, he says. And ironically, they go out to plot to kill him. They understand that the parable is against them. And they say, well, let's go and kill this guy, which is exactly what Jesus says they're going to do. And then Jesus quotes something from Psalm 118 in the Old Testament, written a thousand years before. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvellous in our eyes. The picture is of a cornerstone for a building. It was the most important stone. It it set the parameters and and the the dimensions and directions of of any building. It really mattered. And the picture is that the builders see this stone and they say, no, it's no good. We can't use that. They just put it on the rubbish heap. And God takes what they put on the rubbish heap, brings it back and makes it the cornerstone of what he's doing. Fascinating. Clearly about the son. The builders rejected him. They killed him. What's going to happen? Well, God's going to retrieve him and make him the cornerstone of what he's doing, what he's building into the future. 
It speaks quite clearly of Jesus' own resurrection. That must be what it's about. And as we read through the rest of uh, Mark's account of Jesus, that's what it is about. And taxes. What about the taxes? <laughs> it, it's, it's an obvious trap, isn't it? And Jesus doesn't avoid the question. <laughs> I'd expect him to say, oh, well, I, I don't know. What, what would you like to do? What do you think? He could have said that and started an argument between them, but instead he answers it. He says to them, bring me a denarius, one of the coins that has got the image of Caesar on it. And ironically, for people, some people who think they shouldn't be handling these coins and paying taxes in it, they've got one in their pocket and they bring it out. And he says, well, whose image is on this? And they answer, the obvious answer, Caesar's, of course. This stage, Tiberius. And then Jesus says to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It belongs to Caesar, doesn't it? It's his coin, it's got his image on it, and therefore it belongs to Caesar. So if you owe it to Caesar, pay it to Caesar. If he's building you roads with the the coins and taxes and, and hospitals and schools, well, pay your taxes. You owe it to Caesar, so pay it. But then there's a sting in the tail. And to God's, what is God's? Well, what belongs to God? Some things don't belong to Caesar. Many things don't belong to Caesar. And and it's quite pointed. If Caesar wants to be worshipped as God, don't worship him as God. Only give him what you owe to Caesar. Taxes. It limits what can be given to any Caesar, to any political power, any political party or leader. But there's also a subtle play on words. The coin has the image of Caesar on it. The stamp of ownership, so give it to Caesar because it belongs to him. Well, where do you find the image of God if we're to give God's what is God's? Well, not on a coin, but on us. Remember right back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created humans uniquely in his own image. We bear the stamp of what God is like. We are like him. It's not just though we're like him. The stamp of his image means we belong to him. Everything we are comes from him. He gives us the privilege of being like him in so many brilliant ways. So if we're in the image of God, what is due to God? Well, not just a coin, not just some money, but ourselves. Because we get it all from God, me and you. It puts a question to those who question him, doesn't it? And to us as well. Am I giving God what I owe God? If I'm made in the image of God, am I giving him my allegiance, my love, myself? I'm not autonomous. If I'm made in the image of God, if that stamp is on me, I'm not just some autonomous being that's self-created. I've been designed and created by God. Then the question of the resurrection. Here Jesus is just plain blunt, isn't he? Verse 24, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You're wrong. Now, the power of God, he goes on to say, resurrection is not hard for God. You might think it's hard. You might have difficulty doing it, and I certainly would. But for God, it's not hard. It's not simply a continuation of this life. It's a new creation, and God is pretty good at creation. And he says that in the new creation, there is no marriage. We'll be so transformed, physical, yes, but transformed. There'll be no death. 
and therefore there's no need to sustain population growth and have children. We don't need marriage and there'll be no loneliness because together we'll enjoy each other's company and the company of Jesus himself. We, we won't need marriage for that reason either. And God, the creator of the universe, is perfectly capable of resurrecting dead bodies. But he also says it's because they don't know the word of God, the scriptures. But he's got to show it from the Pentateuch, from those first five books of the Bible, because that's all they accept. And so he goes to Exodus chapter 3, second book of the Bible. That incident about the burning bush. Remember when Moses is out uh, looking after sheep and suddenly he sees this bush which is burning but not being consumed and he's a bit intrigued and God speaks to him. And this is what God says, part of it. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead but of the living. You're mistaken. You might be scratching your head thinking, how does that show resurrection? (laughs) What's that about? Well, two clues. The first is... What does it mean for God to say, I'm the God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac? When God says that, what he's saying is, I'm the protector of them. I'm their God, they're my person, I'm going to look after them. And you see that in the life of Abraham. Abraham continues to get himself into trouble time and time again, and God is always there, keeping him, keeping him going. But there's one occasion where God didn't protect Abraham. You know what it was? The day he died. It seems like God stopped being the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob on the day they died. So the God of means protector. But you also need to know something about timing. When did God say these things? Well, he said it hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had died. He said it to Moses in about 1450 BC. Long time after Abraham had died. So if God says... 500 years later, I'm the God of Abraham. What is God saying? He, didn't, he just doesn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham, but I failed, sorry. I still am the God of Abraham. Which implies that in God's mind, Abraham will come back to life. He will protect him, even from death itself, and resurrect him to life. It's a subtle argument, but it's clear, isn't it? The Old Testament, even Pentateuch, teaches resurrection and notice for Jesus the hope of resurrection is not academic he knows that he's going to be crucified within a week of saying this he himself will be raised by his father from the dead and what about the command what's the greatest commandment what's the most important command well Tom is actually going to look at this incident next week so come back next week I'll just make a couple of comments about it Uh, And then we'll move on. Uh, Jesus answers with his answer. The Pharisee says, Jesus, that was a pretty good answer, actually. And Jesus says, uh, um, notice in verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom of God. It's It's a funny little twist, isn't it? Imagine you hand in an assignment to one of your professors. And the professor hands it back to you and said, that was a pretty good answer. And you say, well, if you thought it was a good answer, that must mean you're making progress. What the? <laughs> I'm telling the professor he's making progress? Who, who could ever do that? Well, only the one who really is more than a professor could do that. And that's what Jesus does to the Pharisee. Well, what are the common threads? Here we see Jesus under the microscope. The first thing I think I notice, I'm blown away by, is simply the brilliance of Jesus. 
The best minds of the day are, are, are getting together, trying to track him, trying to outwit him and expose him. But Jesus bests them every time without any preparation. You know, they've had hours, weeks, years to prepare their questions that they think will get Jesus. Jesus has got no time to prepare at all. He just answers off the top of his head. And yet it's brilliant every time. But there's no sense that Jesus is trying to prove he's brilliant, he's clever. Instead, he just keeps cutting to the heart of every issue and exposing their confusions and motivations and deceptions. Genuine question gets a genuine answer. A trap, he reverses, he traps them. It, it just is brilliant. <laughs> and I'm left speechless, like they were, in awe. I feel like a bumbling fool in comparison. Particularly notice how Jesus turns the table every time. See, they come to examine him. They're putting him under the microscope. They're peering down, looking at Jesus. And what happens? They find him exposing them, examining them, putting them under the microscope. It'd be a bit scary, wouldn't it? You look down the microscope, you expect to see a, a bacteria or something. Instead, you see somebody looking back at you. Well, that, that, that's what happens when they start to examine Jesus. When they investigate him, he's not some inert gas. He's not a dead frog. He's a living person. He's a the son of God person. And we find him assessing us, like he did with the Pharisee who asked about the greatest command. It's disconcerting. It's, it's unsettling. And then Jesus asks his question in verses uh, 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 35 to 37. His question about the identity, the profile of the Messiah. He turns the spotlight on them. See, they have an idea of what they think the Messiah is. The Messiah will be a descendant of David, because that's what the Old Testament says. King David prophesied that, or God said to King David, one of your descendants will will be on your throne forever. And so they know that the Messiah will be a descendant of King David. He'll be King David's great, 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 great grandson of some sort. And they look at Jesus and think, no, it doesn't really fit the profile. He can't be the Messiah. But Jesus says you're ignoring something significant in the Old Testament. Because there's a verse in the Old Testament written by David himself that starts this way. The Lord, that is Yahweh God, says to my Lord, my master, my boss, my king, sit at my right hand. And every Jew rightly interpreted the Lord, my Lord, as being the Messiah. And Jesus asked the question then, how can David call his great-great-great-great-grandson his master, his Lord? You don't do that to your children, do you? I've never said to my kids, hey, you're my boss, you're my king. I want them to say it to me. They don't, but it could only happen, happen, only go one way, can't it? Well, how can David call his son, descendant, his own master and lord? Your little box, your profile of the Messiah is missing a significant piece, and when you put that in, it actually blows a hole in your box, in your profile of the Messiah. And it does. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Who could be both a descendant of David and yet greater than David? He must be somebody who is more than human, more than just a regular Messiah. They've got an inadequate profile. So what's the verdict? What's your verdict on Jesus? As a specimen of humanity, he's a fascinating person to investigate and study. I think he's incredibly impressive. And these incidents, we have people poking poking and prodding, dissecting Jesus. Have you been doing that? Because I hope you have. If you're not yet a Christian, I hope you're doing it. It's all there for you to look at, to explore, to examine at your leisure. If you are a Christian, 
I hope you've been doing it, looking at Jesus, exploring, assessing, re-evaluating him. But do you see what happens when you do it? When you start to explore Jesus, you find him looking back at you. You find Jesus dissecting you, your motives and your life. Now, we actually know that investigating any sentient being is, is not a straightforward issue. Hi, come in. Uh, so, if you're investigating something like a frog, it's not thinking, at least I hope it's not, as I cut through it and look at all the flesh. But psychologists know when you investigate people, you've got to be much, much cleverer with it. You've got to do double-blind experiments, because if they know what you're trying to work out, they, they respond. It, it affects what they do. I remember being up in the Hackett Cafe one day, and a psych student came to me and said, uh, could I ask you some questions? I'm doing a bit of research for my psych project. I said, yeah, sure. They asked me a whole series of questions about irrelevant stuff. And I said, OK, finished. And they said, no, actually, that, was, that wasn't the real survey. And then they then asked me about how I responded to all those first questions. So they had to catch me out. But how do you do a double-blind experiment on God? How do you catch him out? That's impossible, isn't it? Because he knows what you're doing, whatever you're doing. And so as we come to explore Jesus, and I want to encourage you to do it, you need to realise that as it happens... He is exploring you at the same time. Your motives are being exposed. Are you genuine? Do do you want to love and trust if he turns out to be genuine or you're just trying to ridicule him? Secondly, it shows us that our verdict about Jesus is not half as important as his verdict about you. You got questions about Jesus? Please ask away. Go and look, poke and prod, put him under the microscope. But as you do it, this is what's going to happen. You will be exposed. I hope you want that. I hope you're willing for it. If you're not a Christian, that's the game. That's actually what it's like to explore Jesus. If you are a Christian already, I hope that you've started to see him even more clearly for who he is. I've been a Christian about 45, 50 years now. And can I tell you, it just gets more and more exhilarating to poke and prod at Jesus. He just keeps coming back. He keeps being shown to be so genuine. So impressive, so godlike. He's led me to trust him more, to believe in him more deeply and follow him more closely. I hope it'll do the same for you.